Hello, everyone. This is Dwayne Schultes of the Vital Health Podcast. You probably realize we're starting a little differently today. I'm happily speaking to Nikolai Brun. Good afternoon, Nikolai. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good to talk to you again. We have a situation where we'd recorded a podcast about two and a half, three weeks ago, and then we were prognosticating on the pharmaceutical legislation, then it dropped. Obviously, I think we got a lot right, but we just want to hit a couple points upon reflection and looking at the legislation now that it's out and just sort of give a little tag here to our podcast before we go live. Firstly, from your perspective, there are a couple things that changed or at least look good in the legislation. What's good? Absolutely. It's not all bad. And I know there's been a lot of criticism, but I'd like to, there are two points that I think are really good in this proposal, um, the way it was presented by the commission last week. Um, One is the focus on antimicrobial resistant AMR, um, which is now in focus with a proposed voucher system uh, to compensate the companies who develop innovative drugs to address the AMR crisis. And these are really drugs that we want to use as little as possible. And therefore, the commercial case, the whole capitalist reimbursement system, doesn't really make sense in the AMR scenario. Um, so so I think that's a positive, absolutely. Now, we have vouchers currently with pediatric conditions. You'll get a voucher that allows you to trade, and those have been very successful, but they're also coming under increasing criticism from a lot of the activists who think that it drives up pricing. Are you concerned that we're going to see similar heat, that they're going to think this is too much of a giveaway, when in fact this is a, a real problem. And as you mentioned, the economics of, then we discussed this in the podcast too, the economics of you know antimicrobials is very different. It is a big giveaway, but I also think it needs to be because developing new antibiotics that can address the AMR crisis, uh, that can contribute to solving the resistance issue that we have right now, which is so critical for our general health around the world. It's such a critical task. And if you develop a new antibiotic and the goal really is to use it as little as possible, then there is no commercial reward. So the reward from the system needs to correspond to the task that they're lifting. And the voucher, the way it's been presented is such a reward, I think. So it makes perfect sense. Um, I think it, it does have to be a big reward. Otherwise, we will get no innovation, and we sorely need that. Which is what we've been seeing in AMR now, unfortunately. Absolutely, absolutely. We really need progress there. And therefore, I think this this is one of the things in the new proposal that I think that they got right. Um, the other thing I think they got right was the reduction of the EMA review timelines, where they've been lowered to 180 or 150 in case of a high unmet medical need. This puts the EU alongside the US in review timelines, and I think that's that's needed. It's very good. It means that there is no difference between the review timelines in Europe and the US um, when it comes to the regulatory approval. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's very good. They are mentioning themselves that they're profiting from the experience they gained during COVID, and they're putting it to work here with um, optimized review timelines. Also a very good proposal that will help innovators. It will help the patients get earlier access to new medicines. So those are the, the good points. And, and I agree, certainly anything that lowers the barriers and the difference between Europe and the U.S. right now, given the competitive issues, is good. Now, 
let's look at some of the problems that still exist given what happened since the leak. We agree, and we've discussed this quite extensively on the podcast, is the reduction in clinical trials that we're seeing in the EU. Does this get fixed? I'd love to say yes, but really no. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't really see anything in this proposal that um, addresses the increasingly widening gap between conduct of clinical trials in Europe and the US and Asia, we should say as well. Um, We're talking uh, to that point in the podcast, but nothing really in this proposal addresses that, unfortunately. I had hoped that um, we would see the real world data uh, mentioned in a way in the proposal that could help innovators as well. There is mention of a regulatory sandbox. That's uh, a great initiative. So far, the way I read it, and I, I could be wrong, but I, I read it very much as a tool for regulators, perhaps academia. But I think that if you want to use real-world data and use this enormous advantage we actually have in Europe, uh, especially in, in Nordic countries where I come from, in Scandinavia, where we have registers that go back decades, this could really help innovators uh, develop new therapies if applied in the right way. Um, and real-world data can reduce drug development timelines if deployed, for instance, as a replacement for a control arm. Uh, it can be used uh, to re- to replace um, very standard of care requirements in clinical trial designs. Not always, but in some cases. And uh, it can also help if deployed in the correct way, uh, while still maintaining patient privacy, it can help find the patients for clinical trials who have very rare diseases where you really have a hard time finding the participants for the clinical studies that are needed in order to uh, launch a new therapy. And real-world data is really the key to unlock that conundrum. We're seeing the U.S. doing it. We're discussing it in the podcast. Um, We're not seeing much in this proposal that goes down to address this. Real-world data was really focused in the context of this regulatory sandbox. I guess what I found interesting is there was a lot of gray area in the initial description of this regulatory sandbox. And unfortunately, that's not been clarified. I think it's still... It's a bit, I would say it's a bit murky. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, this sandbox has not been quite clear how it's going to be deployed. I'm hoping that it will be deployed. I just outlined uh, in, in that way. But but I, 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 I have a hard time seeing that. The, the, the key to the real-world data component is really the European health data space. Correct. And how the data there can be used uh, for research by academia, for regulators, for, real, for decisions, but also, I think, for innovators who can use it to design uh, new therapies. Um, and, and the question is, how can we do that in a, in a safe, effective way that, that will continue to protect patient privacy? I think there are ways that that can be done. We also discussed that in the podcast um, where you pseudomize or uh, you, you aggregate at a group level that, that might be part of the solution. Moving on to the sort of the elephant in the room here, <laughs> the one big problem is data protection loss. The two-year drop from from ten years to eight years would have been fixed. Unfortunately, it's not. That's still there. I am. I'm a little bit disappointed. I would say because I think this is one of the things that can actually be fixed quite easily. 
when they propose to lower the baseline exclusivity to six years and then add on to that in a modular way with extra exclusivities for launching in all EU27. Launching in all EU27 is no small endeavor. It's really very hard, especially for small biotechs. It's enormously costly. It demands a lot of resources. And it's something that traditionally has been done in an iterative way. I'm not saying that the intention is not good because it is, but I think the way to incentivize people is not to take away two years and then add on. It's actually to keep the base at eight and then say, listen, you're going to get two extra years if you launch in all EU27 uh, very quickly. If the baseline was eight instead of six, then I think that problem would actually be fixed. Because the other point then is if you're looking at some of the comparative effectiveness things you can get, mm-hmm. as well as high on medical need, then you're getting into 11, 12 years, which puts you even over what you're getting in the United States. And given what we've seen in Europe with the competitive issues, that would seem to be smart if you're really trying to hold the industry here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, in, it, I mean, the top end of the modular system is is actually quite attractive but the uh the lower end which might be the baseline case especially for small biotechs because they cannot afford to launch in all 27 member states initially and very quickly that's the drawback for them they will lose a large part of their protection and when it comes to active comparative trials these require a lot of resources they're typically done with the aim to prove either superiority or non-inferiority. And for this purpose, they must be very large. And that makes them very expensive. Otherwise, they will lose power. If you don't power them in, uh, highly uh, to, to that degree, you're not able to, to prove superiority. And that means that they, they do end up being very large clinical trials, very expensive. And for that six months extra market exclusivity, in my view, is simply too little. Nikolai, they're also often outcomes trials. They are, and therefore of very long duration. I think that with six months, it will be very rare that the expense of conducting these large, long, expensive trials um, is matched by a six months extra exclusivity period. It's simply too little. If it had been one year, one and a half, two years, it would be a very different story. But I think we need to go in that direction in order to get innovators uh, to to actually conduct these trials. Well, Nikolai, again, thank you for following up with us again. We will now run the podcast as we recorded it a couple of weeks ago, and people can judge for themselves how accurate we were in our prognostication. It's always a pleasure, Nikolai, and I, I hope we can catch up again. Absolutely. My pleasure, indeed. Have a great day, Dwayne. Thank you, Nikolai. Thanks. Nikolai Brunn is a rare regulator who has actually rolled up his sleeves and successfully helped bring a therapy to market. He was part of a team at GenMap that discovered one of the first monoclonal antibodies for treating cancer. He was previously the chief medical officer of the Danish Medicines Agency and has recently gone back into industry as the CMO of the Swedish biotech company Affibody. He's also a professor of regulatory science here in Copenhagen. Nikolai, it's great to see you. How does it feel to be back in industry? Oh, it feels great. And great to see you again, Dwayne. Um, I, I always enjoy our talks. Um, yeah, going back to industry, uh, I mean, it's not that novel. I spent 20 years in industry prior to my career as a regulator. I worked almost five years during COVID as well, which meant that it was very intense. It was a very uh, hardworking period, very exciting from a regulatory perspective. A lot of things going on, joint procurement of COVID vaccines, 
lots of exemptions, a lot of situations where the regulatory system really had to be manipulated, bent, adapted, adapted. <laughs> Well, we had to find a lot of creative ways for a situation we'd never been in before. Let me ask you something, though. Let's say we're sitting February 2020. Did you ever think we would have an actual prophylactic vaccine by, you know, October, November that showed efficacy, certainly in the over 65s of, you know, a two-thirds risk reduction? I mean, did you ever think we were going to see that? Not in February that year. In April? Yeah. I was pretty confident about it uh, because we started working very hard together with our regulatory colleagues and we formed joint task teams also involving industry and academia. Obviously, regulators, industry and academia need to work together to solve unprecedented problems such as this, each contributing with their own expertise. Um, and very quickly, we saw the advent of promising technologies. We clearly recognized that we did not know which one of them was going to pan out. Yeah. There were protein-based, there were mRNA, a completely new technology never tried before. Um, there were uh, the, the classic uh, inactivated, vac uh, living inactivated vaccines. There were, all kinds of technologies were in play. And we did not know which one was going to be the most efficacious, efficacious and which one would be fastest uh, in order to, uh, to help the situation. So we had to hedge a lot of our bets. We had to, you know, make multiple bets on multiple vaccines. And we actually ended up having to purchase vaccines in advance before we even had the phase three results. Yeah. We purchased in the EU based upon promising phase one, two data. And that's what we had to go on. And that was okay in that situation. It was interesting because we did a webinar with Michael Dalston. Uh, Chief Medical Officer of Pfizer on September 29th, and Clemens Martinauer, who was working with you on yeah, uh, the yeah, yeah. procurement committee, was one of the other people on the yeah. panel. It was very yeah. interesting. And but at that point, Pfizer, basically, I, I asked Michael Dalston, so how's it going? We understand you're in a phase three. Now, this is, you know, a September. Yeah. And he said, well, we just finished our second dosing in phase three, and we're going to be filing with the FDA. I mean, a complete mic drop totally caught me off guard that he went public on that. I mean, that's market moving if he's wrong. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he had this sort of Cheshire cat smile. <laughs> you know? And it was just sort of, okay. You yeah. Know? So I mean, they knew they had good data at that point, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think very early on, we saw several of the technologies providing good efficacy data. Um, and that was very encouraging. Now, from a regulatory perspective was, would that also pan out in the safety? Of course. Would they have an effic efficacious safety, uh, acceptable safety profile? And even more important, could they produce to scale? Yeah. And the production capabilities of the different uh, companies were very different. Very different. There was a very innovative small companies who did not secure production capacity early enough. And therefore, good ideas, fr frankly, never panned out because they could not get it. That's one of the things we saw early on was that the CDMO uh, production capability across the world was strained. We're still seeing the effects of that right now. It's very difficult. If you want to go in and get a bioreactor for a new biologic now, there's a two-year two wait right now because of everything that happened. A lot of the capacity was reserved for COVID vaccines. A lot of the companies went in, 
dedicated their reactor capability to developing COVID vaccines. And that affected the whole drug market, production of everything. Well, if you look at a couple of years before COVID, no one was building new vaccine manufacturing capacity. People were cutting it down. Exactly. People were scaling back because there was a move, you know, people didn't want to invest in them. They didn't want to do, pro- yeah. there's a possibility to have AMR vaccination, you know, mm-hmm. using vaccines. We've seen this with some of the streptococcal vaccinations, which are highly effective, yet no one wants to develop them and yeah. de- deploy them because you can buy penicillin for a penny, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, 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 and that's really one of the things I know we're going to talk about later is the new proposed legislation in the EU, which actually is one of the good parts of it is that it's addressing AMR. Absolutely. Because AMR resistance is such a huge problem going forward. It needs to be addressed. And it's actually one of the scenarios that makes no commercial sense. So therefore, (laughs) it has to be the public sector that addresses it somehow and produces incentives for this to be developed. I had Chris Hoyle, who was an economist from AZ, AstraZeneca at the time, he's since moved on. He was on a panel of mine, and again, at Gashtein, and we had a question from the audience regarding AMR. And I remembered that AstraZeneca had recently released a multispectrum antibiotic, and I sort of spun around on my heels and looked at Chris. I said, you guys just released something. How did it go? And he sort of sheepishly looked at me and said, well, I'm not going to give you exact numbers, but I'll tell you in Scotland, we've sold two. <laughs> you know. And and as a public health authority, that's what you want. Yeah. You want it to be restricted to very, very few patients who will basically die without it and not be used in the broad population because otherwise you build up more resistance. Now, on it. the other hand, <laughs> from a company, that's, that's a disaster. They want to sell. Um, and that's why this will never make commercial sense. But we need it. But the less that is used, the better. But we need innovative antibiotics. And, and that's, that's, that's so interesting. But back to your original question. It's good to be back in industry. After (laughs) almost five years as a regulator, I needed to get my hands into uh, creating new solutions, new drugs. And and I'm very happy where I am now. And I still keep my, uh, you know, part of my foot in the door of the regulatory system. That's your professorship. Yeah, I I spend a a day a week uh, with the team at the university where we have PhD students, postdocs, and so forth. And we're working very much on a real-world data agenda and how this impacts the regulatory system, doing lots of interesting science there. So, So that's fun. GenMab, obviously, groundbreaking company, sort of a small innovative biotech licensing out. Tons of awards got, was nominated and awarded by the international organization Bio, amongst others. I mean, yeah. very, very cool stuff. Yeah. Now you're working with AffiBodies, which are sort of next-gen monoclonal antibodies, sort of... Uh, uh, we believe so. Yeah. yeah. AffiBodies are, you know, from a pure construction point of view, they're 120th the size of a monoclonal. So so we could basically believe they boldly go where no one's gone before, because uh, a monoclonal is a, a great molecule with a high affinity to a highly specific target, but it's also very large. Um, the, that's the name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that's, and that means that there are certain deep tissue structures, such as very complicated solid tumors, where it will only bind to the surface and not really go any further. And there's also an issue of crossing the blood-brain barrier, which we've seen with some of the toxicity issues around some of the neurological treatments that have come out. Absolutely. And recently, we with AffiBody have actually demonstrated in the clinic uh, that another hard-to-access area, such as the enthesite surrounding arthritis patients, is, is very poorly targeted by 
by monoclonals in the in the rheumatoid uh, system, we actually proved we could get in there. And we had 88% resolution of symptoms in the patients that were treated with the AFIBody in a phase two study. More to come on that, but very encouraging to see that the AFIBody also in a clinical setting is able to reach very hard to reach areas because of its size. Because of that, we can also give a lot more drug, which means we can increase the potency. And so far, the safety has been very good. I will never pronounce a drug safe. I'm, as much, <laughs> I'm still a regulator at, at heart in that way because the only way you know a drug is safe is if it's been successfully on the market and is withdrawn <laughs> without people having died. Right. After <laughs> but, several hundred thousand doses. <laughs> exactly. And many, many, many years. Yes, exactly. So, so I think that uh, the safety profile being acceptable uh, with only mild to moderate reactions is, is in our world, uh, a very good safety profile. So, so AffiBody is a Swedish company, obviously GenMab's based here in Denmark. There's been a tradition of good, aggressive, innovative biotech here in Scandinavia in the Nordics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. But overall, I have to say, we've seen an exodus in general. I mean, if I could predict crystal ball, you guys get really good phase one, phase two A data. You get acquired and you'll set up a lab in the U.S. That's sort of what's been happening. Arthur Damage published a study in 1980. 60% of global pharmaceuticals were produced in Europe at that point, and now it's down around 20-25%. You see it on both sides of the equation as both a regulator and as someone who works in industry. Why do you think it's just so compelling to pick up and move to the States? Is it commercial reasons mostly? What is it? I would say uh, the States from a purely commercial perspective is still the most interesting market. The price setting means that everyone has to launch in the US to make a big commercial success out of the product. Um, Now, are the most patients in the US? No, No, they are outside the US. I mean, many things you can say about the US, but there are only 320, 330 million people, the rest outside of the US. Uh, But they are the ones who are willing to pay the price for early access. There have been, especially during COVID, some very stimulating packages that biotech has profited enormously from. I still think we have some very good incentive packages for biotech in the Scandinavian countries. We also have some ownership structures uh, that uh, uh, make it attractive to stay in Scandinavia. Not so much for the rest of Europe. And I do agree with the, with what you said. There has been an exodus. Um, and uh, there is a, a very, very stimulating environment, especially on the East Coast and in the Bay Area and the U.S., Boston coming up there with rare disease space, um, which is really puts it on the map as well. And we need to match that in Europe if we are to make anything of it. I think that the regulatory environment has become increasingly complex. There have been efforts, I noted uh, from the Gastein Summit, that EMA spoke about opportunities to basically, from the EMA side, to make things more streamlined and easier. Um, We have yet to see that come out. I think that a a lot of companies are using the breakthrough designation, the fast tracks, the priority review processes heavily in the U.S., and it benefits the early launches. 
The U.S. also has a tradition for approving new medicines based upon different inference from the from EU, especially in the malignant space, yeah. uh, where they are willing to uh, approve based upon single arm trials and resist criteria. Whereas in the U- EU, we we have generally required progression free survival endpoints, and we often require an, an active comparator as well. Yeah, and that's um, that's different, and that will prolong the process. But there's also local regulatory hurdles in the EU. Um, we at AFIBODY had a clinical trial recently uh, where we very much wanted a Swedish PI to contribute a lot. We Basically, they at that center had contributed a lot to the thoughts and design behind the trial. But the trial actually ended up recruiting completing recruitment everywhere else much faster than we could even get the permits in place in Sweden. So here the Swedish system was too slow in getting all the paperwork done. So it actually prevented the sites from recruiting a single patient into that trial. And Sweden has a reputation of being pretty quick on many levels across the EU. But here they were not. Wow. (laughs) And that's just sad. Um, And I think I think if we are to solve this, I think the link to the clinical trials is an important one. And if we look at clinical trials globally, you know, Europe now, which again, used to lead in clinical trials, even more than the U.S. 30, 40 years ago now is down around 20, 25%. Again, we're seeing a continued exodus of clinical trials in the clinical trial space, the lack of real world evidence utilization and using, you know, perhaps, you know, a virtual control as an endpoint against a, you know, a clinical arm, there just isn't much acceptance of this, particularly in the HTA national space. What's the reason behind that? Is it just cultural? Well, I think we have been scared of data privacy in in the EU to an extent that has perhaps gone a bit too far. Uh, We have the GDPR legislation now, which I basically believe was created for very good uh, reasons and with good intentions. We're starting to see the effects of it now that when we compare ourselves to markets that do not have this, it is creating some issues. I have a story for you about a a clinical trial that a good colleague of mine who works for a US biotech, and that's as close as I'll get (laughs) to identifying them. But this colleague of mine uh, in in their company decided to purchase access to very current real-world data sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think from a claims provider, but I'm not sure. But it's one of those where you can you can buy access to a current real-world data set. Very, very detailed. Um, and they wanted to do that for the purposes of a clinical trial and beyond. For the clinical trial, thanks to this, they could go in and identify the patients who had this disease by area, by street, sometimes in certain areas, all the way down to the house that these patients were living in. And then they could secure that via social media and other channels, these patients were invited or made aware that there was a clinical trial that they could choose to sign up to. Personalized invitations to join the clinical trial. That meant that getting, finding the patients for this disease was extremely easy based upon the real-world data set that they had purchased. They did not have to go through CROs that had to approach lots of KOLs in lots of different sites and say, okay, how many do you expect to see in a year? The, the classic recruitment process. They knew where the patients were 
who had this disease. They got an invitation. They recruited the patients at a rapid speed. They could also use a real-world comparator uh, versus the active patients um, in the trial, just as you said. And then afterwards, they also know which patients to target after they have launched uh, the trial uh, successfully. All of this is not possible in Europe. We've been approached by a, a European biotech, again, anonymously. They're working in an oncology uh, indication that's an orphan, quite small. And we can go to the US providers and we can say, look, we need everything. And this is an extremely rare cancer. And you know, we can find 250 longitudinal de-identified data sets quite easily. We pay for it. It's a contractual situation. We don't need to know where the hospital is. We don't care. All we want to see is a longitudinal ICD codes that we can build out our economic models and our statistical models. You try and do that in Europe. It's a hospital by hospital negotiation. You have to do it federated process where the statistics need to be done on site. Now that's great. If you have 50 or 60 patients, it's not so great if you have one or two. You know, it's hard to run a statistics on an N of one. It doesn't work. And the thing is that, like, for instance, in Scandinavia, we have real-world data sets that go back decades. Absolutely. We could pull a data set like that in two minutes if we wanted to. But, of course, you have to protect patient privacy. You have to make sure you don't compromise that. So I think the U.S. example is perhaps extreme. But the U.S. Does, doesn't currently have any laws uh, like our GDPRs. They, on the other hand, have a Freedom of Information Act, which is going in the other direction, sure. um, which provides two very different legal scenarios and situations in U.S. versus Europe. But exactly as you said, in the rare space, this helps a lot. Uh, I know that Peter Ollett and the EMA and the Big Data Steering Group are currently working on a pilot where they're looking into whether some of this can be done on European data sets as well. Um, And I hope it will be possible. I do see some sort of compromise that might be possible. Like in the UK, you could say, okay, we we are not going to give you patient data down to the street level and the house level. But you can, in the, in the UK zip code, you have six digits letters. And if you just go down to, say, the not the first five, but maybe the first four, then you have on a county level, you get information. That means that you wouldn't be able to identify the patient, even if you try to. So you can decide on what level, what level you want to go to in giving access to data. So you could say, okay, we're going to give you access to real-world data on a group level, which is higher than the individual level. Thereby, you protect the patient's anonymity, but you still get good data that the companies could work on. Part of the problem then is building on this situation. Increasingly, there are diagnostic metabolic combinations of new technologies that are coming in complex clinical trial designs, um, combination therapies, whether that be in multiple drugs or a drug therapeutic diagnostic indication combination package. There's increasing complexity because that's where the science is leading us. And that's roughly about a quarter of the current pipeline. Do you think that some of these proposals that Europe is making is going to solve this problem. How does, you know, there's this proposal for a quote unquote regulatory sandbox Mm. to sort of test. 
I'm skeptical of that only in so far as we've seen many of these pilots come out and we get pilotitis, you know, nothing ever gets implemented uh, because everyone sort of stands up, you know, with a door hand on the door. Here's this new thing uh, and the door gets shut. I, what, what is your opinion of this? Well, I mean, especially, I mean, reading through the, the, the proposed legislation, the small 1600 page yeah, unsearchable document, <laughs> full disclosure, I have not read all of them. Uh, I have, I have selectively read through some of it. Uh, and also I did notice that the publication date of, uh, March 29th, the commission went out it's, and said, it's, get, it's, it's getting delayed. pushed back again. Yeah, yeah. It's getting pushed back and there could be good reasons. I don't know why, but it could be because they're amending a few things. Um, let's hope so. Uh, one of the most intriguing elements of it actually was the sandbox to me. Yeah. Uh, because I think if you play that right, it could be a great, a great initiative. If you, it, it depends on how that is implemented. I did not see much describing what that sandbox actually would mean versus existing regulations. Are they simply putting existing legislation aside to let everything play out in the sandbox on a set of criteria to be defined for that particular uh, investigation? Like a carve-out or something? Yeah. I, I, I don't, don't know. know. But I do see potential for that to be a great initiative. I mean, you, you notice the, the US, the FDA always publishes draft guidelines. Yeah. In the EU, EMA waits and doesn't publish anything until they have a final guideline. And then that's published and then that is the law. I think what the FDA is kind of sandboxing uh, their new proposals by actually releasing them quite early. And then the final guideline sometimes looks very different from the draft. And that's, that's a way of getting in Input. let's put it out there let's see how it works and then we get some input we have some hearings and then you know after a couple of years we make it final and in the form with the adaptations that are necessary it's a good initiative actually i think yeah we were very involved in the adaptive licensing adapt you know medicines adaptive pathways activities about you know 10 years ago now yeah. there were proposals to try and put this into place and some and a carve out and it just it never really got picked up. It never went anywhere, which is a shame because I thought there were some really good things there. I'm hopeful that some of these proposals to try and get some innovation around clinical trial design and adaptability around complex clinical trials mm. will get applied. I'm just, yeah. I, it practically, given the patchwork of current difficulties that we have across the 27 EU countries, I just don't know practically how that can be done. And that's the key issue is that we have 27 independent countries with 27 budgets. Yeah. And that means that whatever commission proposal for a new pharmaceutical regu regulation that comes out is an attempt using centralized tools to solve problems that have both a central and a local element. Uh, and that means that the reimbursement part is still local. Yes. Uh, and we do not have the same benefits in all EU countries. That always that also means that we don't have the same drugs available on the market in all EU countries because of the willingness to pay for them. Um, you do not get the same benefits in Luxembourg that you do in Denmark. 
in Luxembourg, you pay 5% tax. In Denmark, you pay 50% tax. <laughs> uh, that's a huge difference. Therefore, what you get for free should also be different. Now, in Luxembourg, most people are wealthy and can have private insurances that pays for this. That is not the case so much for the former Eastern Bloc countries, uh, where there is a scarcity of resources for paying high prices. And that means that going in and proposing a set of rules for forcing access to all 27 EU member states, in my view, is bound to fail if you do not think in the reimbursement part. Because the reimbursement part is such an essential component of access. It's not just the companies deciding to market a particular drug in a region. It's also affordability and access in that country. I think that if I, I put on my very, uh, very dark glasses and pessimist perspective, I think the proposal in its 1,607-page current form… Unsearchable. <laughs> I have to put that in. Exactly. Unsearchable. Unsearchable. <laughs> it could actually result in lots of companies with high-priced, innovative new solutions to unmet needs not launching their products in the EU. And that would be disastrous. But there's a couple reasons why, and we, I think we should drill into this. For those who are unaware, essentially there, there are two quite controversial proposals that were bundled into the pharmaceutical regulation that was leaked by Politico in March. One of them is that there is a cut of two years of data protection, and then the Scooby Snack, the incentive to get that two years back is to release in all 27 countries. There's a lot of toing and froing and hemming and hawing about this, as uh, Nikolai was just alluding to, because there's an even question if the health ministers in some of these countries even want all of the drugs. You know, you can offer them, but there's a real question as to how practical that is even to deliver at all. Uh, I mean, you're dealing in a new startup. What would happen, let's say you get an accelerated approval in the U.S. or you get breakthrough designation in a year and a half? Let's say, okay, you have a highly promising therapy that's ready to go. Would you even have the scale as a small biotech company in Scandinavia to go and put regulatory teams out in 27 countries like that? Is that even feasible? Not at all. Not at all. Um, and we're working within not ultra-orphan, but quite rare diseases. And that means that from our perspective, we would have a commercial organization uh, of a handful of people. Yeah. Um, and, and we would not be able to, to do that. And the, the regulatory side is one thing. The other thing is the reimbursement side, which absolutely has to be negotiated. Like if you go to Germany, often the reimbursement agencies will have very different requirements for choice of comparator yeah. in the phase three trial. They say, okay, so you have compared against this monoclonal, that's not being used in our situation. We need to compare against the most used standard of care in our region. And that puts completely different requirements for launching in that particular region. And you weren't ready for that based on the requirements that you had from FDA. Exactly. And, and you know, the French might do sort of the same. The Haas in France also has a set of requirements that you need to go through in order to qualify for the reimbursement in, in France. Uh, the Netherlands has a different system. Uh, in Scandinavia, we're getting these agencies as well. Um, and it's, it's getting trickier and trickier, and it's always national. 
and then the commission comes with a pharmaceutical re regulation that doesn't, as far as I've been able to search, and again, it's very <laughs> difficult, it doesn't really address the reimbursement issue no. uh, at all, which is such an integrated, integrated part of access. Um, and I know it's difficult. Uh, I know it's national. I know it's a hot potato. But in my view, it's the best thing the commission could do is say, okay, we need to get cracking on this. We need to do some sort of harmonization on this because access is not just regulatory access. Uh, it's not just uh, uh, market exclusivity and giving that. It is a lot more than that. And the problem is there's a carrot and stick here because the, the carrot is, oh, you get two more years of data protection that we've taken away from you. And the stick is we're taking it, taking it away if you don't release in all 27 countries. So that's, yeah. that's the stick. The problem is I don't think the carrot is the carrot that the commission thinks it is. Mm -hmm. I think for companies such as yourself, you're just going to see it as, okay, we're not going to do our calculations and our return on investment numbers based on this theoretical extra two years. We're only going to look at the two years of data protection. Then we're going to be stuck in court fighting patent cases every day, yeah. you know, and I, that's my concern here is that such a potential huge disincentive yeah. that you don't even care about the extra two years. Yeah. And, and then you could say, could they put in more incentives, real carrots? Um, and, and one of them is, of course, the market exclusivity. Another one is the voucher system. You yeah. could have different kinds of vouchers um, that would help uh, the applicants or that they could sell and trade to other companies uh, for a profit. I think you, you need to use all of these incentives. Uh, they're, in my view, often much more motivating than the disincentives, especially because, as you say, clinical trials are becoming less frequent. Uh, our market share of innovative processes and biotechs is going down. We need something to stimulate that. And that that's not done best by the stick method. Yeah, uh, We need something that makes the European market attractive. And I think that, you know, uh, the the reimbursement issue together with the regulatory system has to be thought in as a whole. And, and that I have not seen in the proposed legislation. And obviously, because of your expertise in real world evidence, that potentially, you mentioned earlier, Sweden has 40 years of real world evidence, you know. The UK, the National Health Service, has 40 years of real-world evidence. These are tremendous treasure troves of potential real-world evidence assets that could be harnessed. Two things. One, we need the regulatory reform to be able to use them. Two, even if we were to implement them, given the dispersion and the fragmentation of the regulatory systems at the member state level, do we even have the skill sets to manage you know, evaluation at this level. If, you know, this was one of the complaints about adaptive licensing, going back to what I was saying earlier, a lot of the member states is like, look, we, we can't even manage, we can't manage what we're doing now just with a straight clinical trial. We, we don't have enough horses in the barn to manage this. Now you're going to add even more levels of complexity and statistical complexity. How do we deal with the skills gap as well? Mm. And, and I'm not even going to pretend I have the solution for that question. <laughs> uh, it's, a good, it's, it's valid. Though, it is a very valid question. It's a good question even. I think, you know, um, when I was the chief medical officer of the Danish Medicines Agency, I was a strong proponent of the using the, the skills available in the individual member states to complement the efforts of the EMA. And I think that with time, I, I perhaps achieved a more nuanced stance on that. <laughs> uh, I would say that there is something to be said 
for boosting the EMA capacity centrally. Right now, they are using uh, assessors for the regulatory applications coming in from the companies who are all sit, sitting in different countries at different regulate, regulatory agencies, such as there might be a medical expert in a particular cancer form who sits at the Spanish agency. Then that person will be allocated as a rapporteur for the file uh, at the EMA level. Uh, there might be someone in Denmark. There might be someone in the Czech Republic. The EMA does not possess these capacities themselves. But the FDA does. The FDA has 18,000 employees. It's huge. It's a massive investment from the U.S. government in an agency handling both foods and drugs. But let's say it's only drugs, then maybe it's 12, 13,000 of them that work on drugs. And the EMA has how many? 1,500 people employed. Um, so it doesn't even come close to matching the FDA. And the FDA has statistical experts. They have oncology experts. They have Red Seas experts. They have everything at their fingertips. And the more you build that, you also create an environment that is attractive for a newly educated specialist to join. They will say, okay, this is a great environment. There are lots of people like me already there. There's expertise. This will be great to join that environment. So I think that rather than having one oncologist in Spain, one in Denmark, and one in Czech Republic, then maybe, you know, to create uh, a work environment with a lot of oncologists hired under the EMA umbrella uh, might actually help address some of this. And that skill set could also be applied to the real-world data sets. Back to your original uh, position about us having a wealth of data. That's actually unique for Europe. Yes, it is. We are sitting on a treasure chest of data that the U.S. does not have. Absolutely not. People, on average, in the U.S. change insurers every three years, and data is not carried forward. That means it's zeroed out. And that means that very, very few data sources in the U.S. can look more than three years back. We have the longitudinal perspective here. That is gold. Of course, we want to preserve patient privacy and integrity. We cannot compromise on that. But I think there must be a middle ground. There must be a way that we can use this data for innovation, not just by academia, but also by innovators in biotech, uh, so that we can actually stimulate the environment going forward. And if I can just add too, not only does the FDA have you know the internal horsepower that you were discussing with the ability to be able to do the analytics and 18,000 employees etc cetera, etc cetera. they also have extremely good contacts with Mark McClellan at Duke University and their clinical trial team there and Duke's you know excellent clinical trial activities over the last couple decades they have all the resources of Harvard they have these networks that they reach out to that also give them next generation practitioners who are coming out of the healthcare systems in these universities to then feed the beast, feed the pipeline yeah. that do that. You know, we're, we're really lacking a sort of systemic approach to trying to solve this and being able to take these brains who are you know newly minted and ready to go and then throw them at a 40 year data set in Europe, it seems to me this has always been the low-hanging fruit. I think you're, you're right. There are some opportunities. I think there is an awareness of this growing. Uh, hopefully, that will become bigger. I think there's also still this uh, 
let's say, insecurity, can this be abused? And, and there are all these examples of data being harvested and abused. And obviously, it shouldn't be. I mean, this we need to have safeguards in place to make sure that data is not being abused. But I don't think that developing new therapies based upon the historical data sets that we have collected uh, you know, collectively in Europe, I mean, this is something that we've all done together yeah. throughout the 40 years, is that we have created an infrastructure to harness our data. Um, and I think most people would say, okay, uh, I would actually like if my data could be used for creating a new therapy uh, for a, a disease that has no treatment today. Uh, I think most people, we, we're also seeing that with participation in clinical trials, the acceptance rate in Europe from patients is very high. People want to contribute, people have the altruistic perspective, and they want to help. I, I think that if you could provide people with some sort of safety that it would not be abused and provide an infrastructure for the data to be used safely by innovators. And I don't have the solution for that. It has to be thought out carefully. I'm not going to pretend that. Uh, but, but I think it must be doable then we could actually use the data sets for creating value. And this is not possible in the U.S. No. Uh, so we, we have an advantage here that could, if handled well, provide a tremendous upside for clinical trials and the biotech environment in Europe. And value-based healthcare is not just a buzzword. I think this is where the regulatory demands, the HTA demands, and the industry saying, look, you know, if we put out a good drug, we want to get paid, and we should get paid for putting out something that's a cure. Present uh, history of Savaldi excluded, <laughs> I do think people generally agree, look, if you're curing an incurable, previously incurable disease 99.8% of the time, yes, that has high value. Yeah. And I do think we can find consensus there, I hope. I hope so too. I mean, the, the, the price point for new therapies are, are always going to be up for discussion. I think, again there, I think collaboration between nations is much better than having them nationally. I mean, currently we're seeing that some of these really new expensive gene therapies and so forth, they are being used in the more affluent member states yeah. of Europe um, and the, the, the not so affluent member states are not using them. And that means that you have a gap uh, between what is available in Denmark and what is available in, in Bulgaria. And I think that if the intention of the EU uh, is to be realized, then we actually have to use our collected efforts to lift the other member states. Um, and that's not being done by saying, okay, we'll pay for what we have here, and then you can pay for what you want over there. Because clearly, that does not solve the access issue. And what it's leading to is pressure on the EU and EMA to make regulatory solutions for things that are essentially national competencies. Essentially, we're trying to use the regulatory bus to drive through a loophole here. Exactly. And if you look at, say, unmet medical need and this proposal, this leaked proposal, you know, the 1600 plus page unsearchable document, uh, if you, and I have read the whole darn thing. <laughs> Um, there are several proposals regarding unmet medical need in orphan indications. Now, if you look at oncology products in the U.S., 82% of accelerated approvals are late-stage oncology products. And most of the indications, over 50% of all the accelerated approval orphan indications are held by three drugs. 
three extremely effective late stage oncology products. You know, all three are on the necessary medicines list of the WHO. They're all exceptional products, yet there is such pushback on the orphan drug indication and the accelerated approval. And what we're seeing in Europe is this is now bleeding into the debate here where we're going to stratify unmet medical need and orphan products into a high, medium, and low risk. Basically, something that's repurposed gets a low-risk category with less data protection, as if something is repurposed as an orphan and then it doesn't makes it less valuable. It just seems arbitrary, it seems oafish, and it seems inefficient to me. I, I follow you there. I think that, you know, there is a saying about being penny wise but pound foolish. I think that if you are really worried about the abuse of orphan indications by somebody who's later able to create a large market, you're not really using your energy the right way. Yes, it is potentially possible. Yes, some of these compounds have proven to be huge commercial successes, but they've also helped a lot of patients. And initially, those indications that they got the orphan designation for were perfectly valid. And that meant that they were developed for those patient populations. I mean, all of these compounds have generated tons of data in multiple, multiple, multiple clinical trials uh, showing their uh, benefits and their risks. So I think I wouldn't spend a whole lot of national or regulatory energy on trying to catch the few opportunities for mix, making a, an extra buck, um, which, which are there. I think the orphan system is a good system that generates um, an incentive for people to develop therapies for diseases uh, for, where there are a few patients. And that should not go away. And I think that that is the risk of tampering with it. Last summer, we were um, engaged by Bio to do a very large analysis on the accelerated approval and a lot of the controversy that's swimming around this from the U.S. side in North America. And what we found was quite surprising to us. If you looked at 80% of the accelerated approvals, they had filed their confirmatory evidence package with FDA within five years, 80%. And so there's a lot of smoke and hype around 20% of these that go off longer than five years in their confirmation trials. And what we found overwhelmingly is those were the genetic-based microorphan conditions for very small indications. And you could actually run a nonlinear regression on this and predict how long it was going to take by the size of the indication to confirm with FDA. Now, am I saying that every single one of those folks who's taking longer than five years to confirm their trial isn't gaming the system? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the behavior is logical and predictive. Now, if there's a bad actor in there, fine. You sign an agreement with FDA. If you have a conditional approval, you sign an agreement with EMA. You have the clinical trial endpoints you're going for. You have the size of the clinical trial. You have a date where you need to file that. Wouldn't it be more logical just to hold them to the letter of the agreement? Wouldn't that make more sense? You agree this stuff up front. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You should agree these things up front. And then you live up to the agreement. Absolutely. And that's what you do. I think that the Fedora Act that came out of the Congress is, in many ways, has some, some good elements in that uh, you need to make sure that the commitments are actually being lived up. Uh, up to. So there is an enforceability component there for, to the agency. Keep an eye on it. Make sure that they actually do the trials that they promised. 
And I think that's reasonable. You, you know, you can you can reach out and say, listen, it's been two years. Uh, are you well on your way to recruiting these patients? Or do we need to look at it again? You can have a, a check-in at various time points sure. to make sure that, that they deliver on the post-marketing commitments. And, and, and clearly, companies who don't deliver anything should have their uh, conditional approval revoked. Obviously, it should be, re- it, it should be revoked. But they have that power uh, now with the Fedora Act. And, and I think they can execute that. So I think that, that that would be okay. What's been funny is if you talk to a lot of the companies, you know, quietly off the record, the companies that don't conform or don't do this, and kind of people have a, an idea in the industry who's not... Who's gaming it? You know, they get very upset about this because it makes them look bad. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And and obviously the gamers should be weeded out. Absolutely. But, but as you say, we know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that difficult. It's, it's not. So here we are. We've got this very small tome of 1,600 pages that leaked out. And obviously it's caused a world of hurt. And they're trying to square a circle and it keeps getting delayed. Uh, obviously, you're a unique individual, Nikolai, because of your expertise and someone who is so pragmatic and intelligent on both sides of the commercial and the regulatory, given what we know about what's really going on here, what would be the best place to start? It's, 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 it's very hard, but um, I think that clearly, the, um, as, as Ima Cook said at the Gustein Summit, you know, the trimming of the unnecessary procedures and the lengthiness of some of them that can be done within the regulatory space. And they know where to start, they can do that. That would sort of put the European system closer to the timelines that are available in the US. Um, there's no reason why a prime application should take 210 days and or 150 when the U.S. can do it much quicker. Or 540 days for an oncology reimbursement in France after EMA approval, for example. Exactly. It's, exactly. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. And also, I mean, the new clinical trial portal has not exactly uh, improved <laughs> the timelines for initiating a clinical trial in Europe. Uh, the clinical trial information system, in my view, could use some optimization. Uh, we are seeing a doubling of the timelines to approval of clinical trials. Wow. And that that is not making it more uh, attractive to conduct clinical trials in Europe, and I think that could be done. Uh, but the, the actual advice I have is that you need to start discussing the hard top topics. That's not easy, but shying away from them doesn't help, and it doesn't create any solutions. The two hard topics are the link between reimbursement and regulatory. The access issue is real. It can only be solved if regulatory and payment merges in some way, at least on the discussion level, in order to address these issues. So I think the commission needs to invite the member states to start discussing whether we can somehow achieve at least a a minimal degree of harmonization. uh, Because just doing a little on that side would help tremendously. And the other thing is the real-world data. Uh, Right now, for us as a small biotech, doing a new trial in an orphan indication 
why should I not do like my colleague in the story I told you? Yeah. Why should I not do, do it in the U.S., purchase access to a current real-world data set? Well, maybe it's nine months old, uh, because usually the claims data are. But, you know, I could find the patients very quickly in the U.S. I could invite them to join the clinical trial. I could recruit the trial in record time. And... I would have all the patients lined up for post-launch. And we haven't even spoken about Asia and what China's doing and all of the advanced therapies we're starting to see from the company Bygene mm. doing all this work in China. Yeah. I mean, this is exponentially increased in China. Yeah. Uh, I think China is a separate issue because there's a lot of talent in China. I think from the disease perspective, a lot of the baseline characteristics of the patients for each disease have a huge variability, yeah. which means that Chinese patients are not always that representative of uh, a European population or a U.S. population, which means that trials done in China cannot always replace China, trials done in Europe or the U.S. FDA is actually becoming more hardcore on yeah. that issue right now, and they want demographics that represent a U.S. population uh, before approval. Um, and, and that means just having done it in white males in Europe is not enough. Right. Uh, you need to have the diversity of the U.S. population before you launch your marketing application. But a, a billion people, yeah. a, a database access of a billion people longitudinally, I mean, as the old joke says, you know, in a country of a billion people, even if you're a one in a million person, there's a thousand people just like you. Yeah, exactly. And, and that means that you can find a lot of patients, I think, if the Chinese system continues to mature the way it's doing now, it'll become very attractive to do early stage research in China. Um, you could do a lot of the early stage phase one proof of concept uh, stuff there. And then for the pivotal trials, you probably have to do them in the countries where you intend to launch. But you could get proof of concept. You could get magnitude and, and on, uh, of efficacy and lots of that you could, you could do there. And I think that that's what they're setting up right now. Um, and that means that the phase one units of, of Europe, uh, having someone breathing down their neck, on stealing that trial potential uh, into a very well-run machine in China. And this is the problem. It's, it's becoming a globally competitive problem for Europe in the clinical trial and innovation space. That's really my concern. Yeah. And I don't think restrictions and regulations is the way forward. We should increase our own competitiveness and we should use the tools that we have for making ourselves uh, an attractive place to conduct clinical trials. We have 500 plus million citizens in Europe. It's a large space. It's commercially strong. We have a lot of value, a lot of capital, and we have 40 years plus of very, very good patient data uh, that can be used for developing new therapies. And that it should be responsibly, of course, but in my view, it should be used. Nikolai Brunt, always great to see you, sir. Always a great conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This Vital Health podcast was made possible with the support of the European Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, FPIA. The executive producer of the Vital Health podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodeen. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.